episode 93. Da, 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 da. A man slowly clicks his cane down the road. I restrain my urge to break out my flashlight, magnifying glass in hand. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. You thought you had enough, Poe? No, well, me neither. This week, we talk about how we started the detective movement. Yes, there were a few before him, but he organized the style in the way we know of it today. So let's toast his favorite drink, his own family's eggnog recipe. Why not try part of his last meal, vinegar pie? How about we chat about those he led down the path? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and William Gillette took the ball and ran with it to create the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, and Gillette Castle, Fieldstone Building of Mystery. But wait, don't forget the start of the reading of The Murders of the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Phew, I better get going. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These sleuths seek out the gory, mysterious, and elementary clues to solve the Victorian murder mystery that is the Patuxent General, without whom I would be stuck in the lounge with a candlestick. If you would like to become one of these savvy detectives, simply follow the link in the show notes or find our page on Patreon.com. A small donation means everything to us, so thank you. As we talked about last week in episode 92, Edgar Allan Poe died after misadventures of enforced election fraud. It is believed that his last meal was in a local pub, and at the time, it was most likely that he had fish chowder and vinegar pie. That's right, I said vinegar pie. Of course, I must say that they probably used either cider vinegar or cider that was just turning. This would bring apple flavor to the dish. The recipe I found comes from 1859, which makes this likely to be the same sort of pie. The addition of an egg or two tablespoons of butter would really pep up this pie, but it's tasty as it is. I would go a little heavy on the flour to make it thick enough. The vinegar pie recipe goes like this. Take a gill or half a cup of cider or vinegar, one quart of water, one teacup of molasses or sugar enough to make it sweet. Stir in a half a dozen spoonfuls of flour Put it on the fire and let it boil. Bake with two crusts or put the top crust in strips if it is liked better. Those were the directions from 1859. Later versions have meringue on the top or just one crust. Any way you want it is nice. Just don't let ruffians get you drunk, change your clothes, and make you vote too much. Enjoy. For our drink this week, we have a copy of the Poe Family Eggnog Recipe. Seeing as it was one of Edgar's favorites, let's see what he thought was so special. Thank you, The New York Times. Published last year, the Poe Family Eggnog Recipe was supposedly passed down from generation to generation, from 1790 until today. It calls for a mix of brandy and Jamaican rum, counting on copious amounts of liquor to cook the egg. 
I kept the same liquors that Poe favored, but preferred to make a custard base with the eggs to get rid of that yolky taste that can turn off some nog agnostics. For this recipe, you will need seven eggs separated, one cup of sugar, five cups whole milk divided, one half cup heavy whipping cream, one and a half cups brandy, one quarter cup rum, and some nutmeg. In a heavy bowl, combine the egg yolks with sugar, whisking them until thick and pale, then set aside. Fill a large bowl with ice water and set it aside. In a small saucepan, warm three cups of milk over low heat. Whisk one cup of warm milk into the yolk mixture. Fill a large bowl with ice water and set aside. In a small saucepan, warm three cups of milk over low heat. Whisk one cup of warm milk into the yolk mixture. Add this back to the milk in the pan, stirring over low heat until combined and thickened. Remove from the heat and quickly stir in the cream. Place the saucepan in the prepared ice bath. Stir occasionally until chilled. Then, add the brandy, rum, and remaining two cups of milk. Pour your eggnog into glasses. In a medium bowl with a handheld mixer, beat the egg whites until soft peaks form. Spoon egg whites over eggnog and top with grated nutmeg. I say, take a long swig and we'll have a chat about the connections between Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and Gillette Castle in Connecticut. This episode, we are going to start reading The Murders of the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. You may not be familiar with this particular work, but you should know that most of the detective tropes of which we are so fond started here. Smithsonian Magazine had this to say. Though the roots of the detective story go as far back as Shakespeare, Poe's tales of rational crime-solving created a genre. His stories mix crime with a detective narrative that revolves around solving a puzzle of whodunit, inviting readers to try and solve the puzzle, too. The key figure in such a story, then, is the detective. Poe's detective, who appears in The Mystery of Marie Roget and The Purloined Letter, set the stage for this character. Dupin is a gentleman of leisure who has no need to work and instead keeps himself occupied by using analysis to help the real police solve crimes. The real police are, of course, absolutely incompetent, like Inspector Lestrade and Scotland Yard are to Holmes. Like his literary descendant, Dupin smokes a meerschaum pipe and is generally eccentric. He is also unnaturally smart and rational, a kind of superhero who uses powers of thinking to accomplish great feats of crime-solving. And the story's narrator, who is literally following the detective around, is his roommate. Dupin's roommate, unlike John Watson, remains a nameless I throughout the three stories, although he is equally every day. In the Dupin tales, Poe introduced a number of elements, like the friendly narrator, that would remain common in detective stories. The elements Poe invented, such as the reclusive genius detective, his ordinary helper, the impossible crime, the incompetent police force, the armchair detection, the locked room mystery, etc., have become firmly embedded in most mystery novels of today. Even Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock, had to acknowledge Poe's influence. Where was the detective story until Poe breathed life into it, he wrote. 
Poe's formula appealed to the 19th century because detective stories promised that reasoning could hold the answer to every question. At the same time, with spooky overtones, they appealed to 19th century readers' preoccupation with the occult. In 1844, Poe wrote his mystery. Forty-three years later, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the stunning character Sherlock Holmes. From the beginning, Doyle was stunned at the popularity of the sleuth. No matter how he tried to move on, Holmes' followers were fanatics and wanted nothing to do with new endeavors. By the time that William Gillette approached him to co-write the play, Sherlock Holmes, he was ready. In 1923, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in Chapter 11, Sidelights on Sherlock Holmes of his autobiography, Memories and Adventures. About the first play, which was produced very much earlier, in fact, at the time of the African War, it was written and most wonderfully acted by William Gillette, the famous American, since he used my characters, and some extent my plots, he naturally gave me a share of the undertaking, which proved to be very successful. "'May I marry Holmes?' was one cable which I received from him in the throes of composition. "'You may marry or murder or do what you like with him,' was my heartless reply. I was charmed, both by the play, the acting, and the pecuniary result.' I think that every man with a drop of artistic blood in his veins would agree that the later consideration, though very welcome when it does arrive, is still the last of which he thinks. He also penned this letter to Gillette. My dear Gillette, may I add a word to those which are addressed to you upon the occasion of your return to the stage? That this return should be in Sherlock Holmes is, of course, a source of personal gratification. My only complaint being that you make the poor hero of the anemic printed page a very limp object as compared with the glamour of your own personality, which you infuse into his stage presentment. But in any case, you are bringing back to the world something very precious in your own great powers, and I rejoice to know it. Yours always, Arthur Conan Doyle. William Gillette was a very remarkable man, over six foot, he was a daunting figure. He was born July 24th, 1853, six years before Arthur Conan Doyle. An intelligent person, born in Hartford, Connecticut, he was drawn to the theater from the beginning. At age 20, he left home and traveled about, studying at different schools. And through a lucky break at the Globe Theater in Boston, he stood in for the lead in Broken Hearts and was well-received. Not surprisingly, he stood out as an actor. He was reserved and thoughtful in his acting, which was unusual for the time, where it was believed bigger was better, which silent films encouraged later as well. This acting style was perfect for the role of Sherlock Holmes. The hat and elementary both come from William Gillette. But that is not what I brought you here to talk about. It is what this gent did with the rest of his life that I want to visit. Gillette Castle State Park... Connecticut.org, has this to say about the mysterious Sherlock Holmes-style castle that he himself designed. Atop the most southerly hill in a chain known as the Seven Sisters, William Hooker Gillette, noted actor, director, and playwright, built this 184-acre estate, the Seventh Sister. The focal point of his effort was a 24-room mansion reminiscent of a medieval castle. 
purchased by the state of Connecticut in 1943 from the executors of Mr. Gillette's will, Gillette Castle and the adjoining property, with its fine woodlands, trails, and vistas, are now administrated for the enjoyment of the present and future generations. This apparently would have pleased Gillette, since his will gave specific directions to see that the property did not fall into the hands of some blithering saphead with no conception of where he is or with what he is surrounded. This statement also points out with the value Gillette placed upon his estate and the apprehension he felt about its disposition. Gillette designed the castle and most of its contents personally, periodically checking out every phase of their construction. Built of local fieldstone supported by a steel framework, it took 25 men five years, 1914 to 1919, to complete the main structure. Gillette began his semi-retirement in this new home, and in the following years, he supervised the many thousands of refinements created by local craftsmen. The woodwork within the castle is hand-honed southern white oak. Of the 47 doors within the structure, there are no two exactly the same, and each door has a handsome external latch intricately carved of wood. Even the castle's furnishings are indications of Gillette's inspirations. The built-in couches, a movable table on tracks, the light switches of carved wood all point to his creative genius. Outside on the grounds, Gillette's influence is no less in evidence. The trails often follow over trestle and through tunnel, the actor's three-mile-long narrow-gauge railroad. Gillette's own walking paths were constructed with near-vertical steps, stone arch bridges, and wooded trestles spanning up to 40 feet. Other outdoor attractions include a vegetable cellar, the railroad station, and Gillette's goldfish pond. Besides his activities as an actor and playwright, Gillette is known to have written two novels, invented many stage trick props and lighting techniques, and often produced and directed the plays in which he appeared. After his semi-retirement in 1910, Gillette was welcomed by theatre-goers countless times during his four revival tours. His last performance was at the Bushnell in Hartford in 1936, the year before his death. I suggest that you check out Gillette Castle State Park and the castle itself at 67 River Road, East Haddam, Connecticut. It is a very reasonable cost to go through, and the kids will love the intricate locks and secret passages. The outside has recently been updated for safety while preserving the original design. You will love it. This just in. The most exciting time of the year is upon us at the Edgewood Congregational Church. The annual Holiday Bazaar. November 18th, 2023 from 9am to 2pm. This year is bigger than ever. Lydia's Closet, the thrift store, has been collecting all sorts of really useful items. Stunning jewelry, clothing, and that's just them. We are filled to the brim with vendors, food vendors you may recognize from the farmer's market. The Patuxent General itself will be chock full of pies to sell. The Bazaar will have games for the kids and pinball from Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration. Come join us November 18th, 2023 from 9 a.m. till 2 p.m. I'll meet you there.
I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Let's start at the detective beginning, The Murders in the Room Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. What song the siren sang, or what name Achilles assumed when he hid himself among women, although puzzling questions, are not beyond all conjecture. Sir Thomas Brown. The mental features discoursed of as analytical are, in themselves, but little susceptible of analysis. We appreciate them only in their effects. We know of them, among other things, that they are always to the possessor, when inordinarily possessed, a source of the liveliest enjoyment. As a strong man exalts in his physical ability, delighting in such exercises as call his muscles into action, so glories the analyst in that moral activity which disentangles. He derives pleasure even from the most trivial occupations bringing his talent into play. He is fond of enigmas, of conundrums, of hieroglyphics, exhibiting his solutions of each a degree of acumen which appears to the ordinary apprehension preternatural. His results, bringing about by the very soul and essence of method, have, in truth, a whole air of intuition. The faculty of resolution is possibly much invigorated by the mathematical study, and especially by the highest branch of it, which unjustly, and merely by the account of its retrograde operations, has been called, as if par excellence, analysis. Yet to calculate it is not itself to analyze. A chess player, for example, does one without effort to the other. It follows that the game of chess and its effects upon mental character is greatly misunderstood. I am not now writing a treatise, but simply prefacing a somewhat peculiar narrative by observations very much at random. I will therefore take occasion to assert that the higher powers of reflective intellect are more decidedly and more usefully tasked by the unobstreptuous game of drafts than the elaborate frivolity of chess. In this latter, where the pieces have different and bizarre motions, with various and variable values, what is only complex is mistaken, a not unusual error, for what is profound. The attention is here called powerfully into play. If it flag for an instant, an oversight is committed resulting in injury or defeat. The possible moves not only manifold, but involute. 
the chances of such oversights are multiplied, and in nine cases out of ten it is the more concentrative rather than the more acute player who conquers. In drafts, on the contrary, where the moves are unique but of very little variation, the probabilities of inadvertence are diminished, and the mere attention of being left comparatively unemployed, while advantages are obtained by either party, are obtained by superior acumen. To be less abstract, let us suppose a game of drafts where the pieces are reduced to four kings and where of course no oversight is to be expected it is obvious that here the victory can be decided the players all being equal only by some research movement the result of some strong exertion of the intellect deprived of ordinary resources the analyst throws himself into the spirit of his opponent identifies himself therewith and not unfrequently seeing thus at a glance the sole methods, sometimes indeed absurdly simple ones, which he may seduce into error or hurry into miscalculation. Whist has long been noted for its influence upon what is termed calculating power, and men of the highest order of intellect have been known to take it in apparently unaccountable delight in it, while eschewing chess as frivolous. Beyond doubt, there is nothing of a similar nature so greatly tasking as the faculty of analysis. The best chess player in Christendom may have little more than the best player of chess, but proficiency in whist implies capacity for success in all those more important undertakings where the mind struggles with mind. When I say proficiency, I mean that perfection in the game which includes a comprehension of all the sources whence legitimate advantage may be derived. These are not only manifold but man of form, and lie frequently among recesses of thought altogether inaccessible to the ordinary understanding. To observe attentively is to remember distinctly, and so far the concentrative chess player will do very well at whist, while the rules of Hoyle themselves based on a mere mechanism of the game, are sufficiently and generally comprehensible. Thus to have a retentive memory and to proceed by the book are points commonly regarded as the sum total of good playing, but it is in matters beyond the limits of mere rule that the skill of the analyst is invinced. He makes in silence a host of observations and inferences. So perhaps do his companion, and the difference in the extent of the information obtained lies not so much in the validity of the inference as the quality of the observation. The necessary knowledge is that of what to observe. Our player confines himself not at all, nor, because the game is the object, does he reject deductions from things external to the game. He examines the countenance of his partner, uh, comparing it carefully with that of each of his opponents. He considers the mode of assorting the cards in each hand, often counting trump by trump, honor by honor, through the glances bestowed on their holders upon each. He notes every variation of face as the play progresses, gathering a fund of thought from the differences in the expression of certainty, of surprise, of triumph, or of chagrin. From the manner of gathering up a trick, he judges whether the person taking it up can make another in the suit. He recognizes what is played through the feint, by the air in which it is thrown on the table, a casual or inadvertent word, the occasional dropping or turning of a card, with the accompanying anxiety and carelessness in regard to its concealment, or counting of the tricks, with the order each of their arrangement, embarrassment, hesitation, eagerness, or trepidation, all afford to his apparently intuitive perception indications of the true state of affairs. The first two or three rounds having been played, he is in full possession of the contents of each hand. 
and thenceforward puts down his cards with an absolute precision of purpose, as if the rest of the party had turned outward the faces of their own. The analytical power should not be confounded with ample ingenuity, for while the analyst is necessarily ingenious, the ingenious man is often remarkably incapable of analysis. The constructive or combining power by which ingenuity is usually manifested, and to which phrenologists, I believe erroneously, have assigned a separate organ, supposing it a primitive faculty, has been so frequently seen in those whose intellect bordered otherwise upon idiocy, as to have attracted general observation among writers on morals. Between ingenuity and the analytic ability there exists a difference far greater, indeed, than that between the fancy and the imagination, but of a character very strictly analogous, to be found in fact that the ingenious are always fanciful, and the truly imaginative never otherwise than analytic. The narrative which follows will appear to the reader somewhat in the light of a commentary upon the propositions just advanced. Please join us next week for the continued reading The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you for joining us once again today at the Patuxent General. If you would like to reach out with a comment, question, recipe, or local ghost story, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Please reach out. We can't wait to hear from you, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production pre-recorded in Patuxent.